0: Our house is still on fire.
1: This is Thermopylae. This is Achencourt. This is the Battle of the Bulge. We have to rise to this
2: occasion.
0: The transition isn't going to be easy.
2: Welcome to House on Fire, a new podcast from the World Economic Forum that brings you closer to the innovators all over the world who are tackling the climate crisis, helping us avert environmental catastrophe and keep our planet habitable.
3: I'm Kiara Kelly. And I'm James Bray, sort of reporter sidekick. Kiara asks the questions, I go away and find the answers, or try to. This week, in our first episode, the question is this How can we stop destroying nature?
2: Unless you've been living under a rock in recent years, you probably know that there's a mass extinction event going on right now, and it's our fault. The world is losing biodiversity at a scary rate. If you've ever wondered why that actually matters or what we can do about it, you're in the right place. We're going to talk about all that, and we're going to meet a few of the thousands of people all over the world who are actually doing something about this, which may even inspire you to do likewise. This topic has been around a lot lately,
4: mainly because of this guy. That The future of the natural world is in our hands. We have never been more powerful. We can wreck it with ease. We can wreck it without even noticing that we're doing it. And if we wreck the natural world, in the end, we wreck ourselves.
2: Sir David Attenborough, of course, who at 94, recently broke Instagram's record for reaching a million followers. Let's be honest, if you're listening to this, you've probably already seen his new film, A Life on Our Planet, which has been huge.
3: We spoke to Colin Butfield from the World Wildlife Fund, who was one of the producers. I asked him to summarise the philosophy at the heart of the film.
2: The central
1: philosophy, I suppose, is that um, we have got to a point where we feel like we're removed from the natural world. In fact, many of us day to day are removed from the natural world, um, living in cities and having lives unconnected to the seasons and and things like that. But actually, the reality is anything but that. Um, We completely rely on a stable natural world and we need to effectively reconnect with nature, re-understand our relationship, re-evaluate our relationship to nature. And only by doing that and by restoring the natural world do we have a chance of a stable human society moving forward? The call in the film is to, is to rewild the world, um, but, but a, a, sort of practically that means um, restoring and changing our relationship with nature and understanding we're a part
2: of it. This is such a big captivating idea. It seemed a good place to start this podcast. Is it even possible to extend this kind of philosophy to the modern industrialized world? And what might that look like? How would it change us as consumers and how would it change our businesses and our governments if we stopped thinking of nature as dependent on us and started thinking of ourselves as dependent on nature?
3: Ask anyone who knows anything about this, And they'll tell you that the world champions of living in harmony with nature are indigenous peoples. So I asked Graham Reid, who is of mixed Anishinaabe and European descent and works at Canada's Assembly of First Nations, whether it's possible to talk about an indigenous philosophy of nature.
5: I think part of it is just acknowledging the kind of heterogeneity and diversity amongst indigenous peoples as a starting point, but then kind of referencing, you know, the principles of, of respect and of um, reciprocity and, and of balance that, you know, are kind of representative of, of Indigenous perspectives. And, and that's one way to do it kind of respectfully. Um, it also kind of triggers in my mind the uh, the kind of concept of, I guess the word in English would be kind of spirit. And also like that the uh, kind of reflection that inanimate beings do actually have a spirit and and there's a connection to that. And I think that sort of like recognition is a part of Indigenous knowledge systems that have been cultivated over thousands and thousands of years.
2: Respect and reciprocity. So what's that look like in practice?
3: Well, of course, there are thousands of versions of it. And I can only scratch the surface here. I spoke to Hindu Ibrahim president of the Association for Indigenous Women and Peoples of Chad. She told me some amazing stories about life amongst her people, the Bororo, pastoralists from the Sahel.
0: When a young boy who has seven years, he can take a hundred of cattle, go in the brooch with them. He spend all the day from the morning, he come back to the evening. And in this brooch, there is lions, there is elephants, there is snake the scorpion or whatever and everything but he know he go there with his cattle alone he eat the fruits of the brood and he come back at the evening nothing can happen to him nothing can happen to the cattle why he's not like uh, magical he have like a gun that he can throw of them or whatever no because just so we know how to live in harmony with those animals. Uh, I give you the example that I left personally. It was in the desert of the Chad. So you have the small water place in the middle of the desert, and you have the last desert crocodiles in the world there. And you have camels from the pastoralists and peoples who come and collect the same water. So the crocodiles during, uh, you, you know exactly the time, like from uh, uh, 7 to 10, 11, they just uh, come all outside in the sun. They stay in the sun. So you see them, they see you. You can go and jump on them on bother them, but you can come take your water because you know, this is the time that they are getting snapped in the, sh- in the sun. So we we went there, you go, you collect, you see them, they see you, and then you do your business, they do them business. It's just the respect of each other, and it's just like living in harmony with each other. It's not difficult at all when you live with it.
2: Okay, so I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that for most people listening to this podcast, the idea of heading down to a crocodile-infested pool to take a pitcher of water would be pretty intimidating. I know, speaking for myself, I'd have to be um, pretty thirsty.
3: I mean, I would be terrified, but for Hindu, not so much. With the right knowledge, the right attitude, it's more possible than you think to share a scarce natural resource with wild creatures, even ones that can tear your limbs off.
2: It's a good story, but can any of this really translate to the industrialized world's dealings with nature? What would it look like to put these kinds of principles at the heart of a modern business? What does reciprocity really mean anyway?
3: I mean, really, it's just the notion of give and take. Instead of only taking from nature, we have to give back to it and respect its limits. Whereas it's fair to say the history of the industrialised world so far has been better at the taking side of things. As it just so happens, the World Economic Forum has recently been doing some work on this very subject. Over the summer just gone, the forum published a new report called The Future of Nature and Business, which dwells at some length on how the way we go about business could be more nature-friendly. Alexia Simov led the work on the report and is very across the detail, so asked her to describe how well we're doing with the status quo.
6: We're doing an awful job at sharing this planet, with the planet. We're very, very awful housemates here, because we are, I mean, um, wildlife has been dwindling in the past years, and, um, Over 1 million of species are at extinction of risk. Uh, 75% three quarters of the planet are degraded. 60% of populations across vertebrate species have seen a decrease. I mean, the numbers are quite alarming. Wow,
2: that's compelling stuff. I mean... You could be forgiven for thinking you were listening to someone from Greenpeace.
3: Yeah, she wasn't pulling any punches. She's actually a former McKinsey consultant, by the way. She and her team have been taking a forensic look at the state of the world's biodiversity to itemise the impact that industry having in all the detail you would expect from a team of accomplished quants. It's a great report. Uh, there's a lot more depressing numbers in it if you are interested in the detail. But here's the bottom line.
6: We, we've reaching tipping points all around the world. We're reaching all these planetary boundaries that we talk about like if they were far away, but they're actually much closer than we think.
3: It's worth saying that this report isn't even fundamentally about how badly humans are treating nature. It's more about how badly nature is going to treat humans if we keep trashing it.
2: I guess that would be the whole reciprocity thing. If we only take from nature, that's a one-way deal, not a reciprocal one.
6: Nature provides a set of ecosystem services. The first report that we released found that 50%, around 50% of the world's GDP, is highly or moderately dependent on nature and its services. It's not to say that the other half is completely independent of it. No, not at all. It's more to say that at least half is totally dependent to it. And without it is lost. And some examples are um, pollinators, right? Um, Pollinators today pollinate around three quarters of our crops, and we're losing them at at an alarming rate. Unless we start building little drone bees that are gonna pollinate our food, uh, well, we haven't really figured out how we're gonna have food to feed ourselves.
3: Basically, the message is, if we want to protect ourselves, we need to get a lot better at protecting nature, fast. We need to figure out how to do our business and let nature do its business alongside each other, like Hindus pastoralists and the crocodiles, but at scale. Which sounds good in theory, but in practice, when businesses start working it through, it can look almost impossibly revolutionary. Nevertheless, some entrepreneurs are trying.
2: Easier said than done, I imagine. I assume you have some examples?
3: Yes. so one among many I could have chosen is a company called T-Mill. To use the language of the forum's report, they are a company in the circular textile space, leading the way to planet-compatible consumption. More colloquially, they are a sustainable t-shirt company based on the Isle of Wight in the UK. Founded by two brothers in their 20s a decade ago, it's a business that's absolutely rooted in millennial environmental values.
7: I think like a lot of young people, we just sort of wanted to do something about it. It it sort of seems a shame that When you buy a product, it's kind of mixed in with this story about guilt, how we all have to do less and buy less, which is sort of, for a young person just getting started in life, it feels like almost like you're getting banned from from participating in the economies.
3: That's Mark Drake Knight, one of the founders. He and his brother wanted to put nature-friendliness at the heart of their business from the get-go, not tack it on later as a sort of afterthought, but it's not as easy as it sounds.
7: When we tried to do all of that, the economy sort of started punishing us for trying to trying to do those things everything got more expensive natural materials more expensive renewables more expensive and um, it cost us money to clean up our waste and it was cheaper cheaper just to let the customer throw it away we decided we would try and change the design of the business model a little bit and use technology to solve some of the problems. The circular economy and the future of the economy isn't just taking the current economy and just painting it on the outside like a new color or tidying it up a little bit. You need to smash it open and mess with the inner workings and fundamentally change the structure
3: of companies.
2: Okay, go Mart. But did he actually get anywhere? Also, how sustainable can you really make t-shirts?
3: Mart's the engineer of the family, so it was actually his job to design sustainability into the business process, in every part of the production chain. Here's what that looks like. First, their t-shirts are pure cotton, which means they can easily be recycled and remanufactured. The idea is that, rather than go in the bin when the user's finished with it, every single t-shirt they make should be sent back to them, so it can be turned into another t-shirt. In addition, they manufacture only to order, so there's no overproduction. They use organic cotton, their dyeing process recycles its water, their manufacturing process uses renewable energy, and they use paper packaging instead of plastic, which, of course is recyclable. What all of this means is that they're hugely reducing their footprint on the world, which is what all of us are going to need to do if we're going to respect nature's limits.
7: Every product comes with a code inside it, and the customers are incentivized to send them back to us, and we chop the material up, make it into new products. So new uh, new products are made from the old ones. Instead of creating waste, we just make new products out of it. That's what Teemil does uh, every day.
2: Okay, Well, that does sound like a pretty good stab at reciprocity. But how does a business like this get people to play ball? He mentioned that there's some kind of incentive for people to send their T-shirts back.
3: Yes. Well, the important point, which Mart was at pains to make clear, is what they don't do is merely appeal to your conscience.
7: So instead of just saying, hey, listen, be a good egg and do your bit and send it back, we're saying, hey, listen, your wardrobe uh, is is now, it's not it's not a T-shirt, it's, it's worth money. And one thing that you can rely on everybody in the world to do is that nobody would throw a five pound note in the bin. So we give them... Um, £5 store credit on average for a product that they send back. And it's free post to send back, right? So they scan it uh, with the phone, it's free post, chuck it in a post box, and they get a fiver to spend on the next order. And so um, the reason we're able to afford that is because we've designed the products in a way from the start that makes that material useful to us at the end. So actually, it's worth it to us to have that material back because we can utilize it. And that's when the circular economy starts to work, where everybody gets rewarded for keeping the material flowing. Whether someone cares or not, the outcome's still the same.
3: And if the business isn't relying on consumers to act out of the goodness of their hearts, the same goes for its management. Values are important, but so are financial incentives.
7: Maybe I'm not saying the most important thing. Sustainability is good for business if you do it right. Something like three out of five t-shirts are thrown away within 12 months. And 40% of all clothing production is is, is, is not utilised. So basically, people are buying loads of stuff that they don't wear, and brands are making a load of stuff on mass, which a large percentage of it is never really sold. Like, imagine if you said to a big business that mass produces, would you like to reduce waste by 40%? I mean, yes, because waste is cost. There's a massive case for sustainability at a waste reduction level, because um, every... F- um, financial or business person knows that a pound saved is a pound earned big companies just need to ask themselves what's the bigger risk you know the risk of having to fundamentally rethink their business model or to have it completely disrupted and made irrelevant by people like
3: us you're listening to house on fire we'll be back right after this (laughs)
7: COVID pandemic has been really hard on cities. Up until now, about 95% of all the reported infections, see all the fatalities have occurred in cities.
5: Welcome to World vs. Virus, a
3: podcast from the World Economic Forum that aims to make sense of the COVID-19 outbreak. This week, has coronavirus killed the city?
8: Many people have predicted the death of cities over many centuries. I do think the texture of cities will be permanently changed.
3: The pandemic has caused people to snub or even flee cities in rich and poor parts of the world. And an opinion piece in the New York Post in August declared, New York City is dead forever. Two Experts tell us what really is the future for our cities.
7: The future is uncertain, it's bleak, it's volatile. There are a lot of question marks, but cities have virtually always bounced back from pandemics.
3: Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. From the World Economic Forum, I'm Robin Pomeroy and this is World vs. Virus. Now, of course, not everyone gets to start from scratch like T-Mill. For many companies, dealing with massive legacy systems, redesigning themselves to be nature-friendly is going to be very daunting. But the more we come to understand the alternatives, the bigger the incentive for company top brass to bite the bullet. After all, disruption isn't the only risk businesses caught with unsustainable activity. It's fair to say that Peter Geiger knows a lot about risk. He's the chief risk officer of Zurich Insurance Group. He thinks of biodiversity loss as a reduction in risk mitigation optionality.
2: Uh Uh-oh. Jargon alert. I think you're going to have to unpack that.
3: Bit of a mouthful, I know, but it's not as complicated as it sounds.
1: Let's assume a a new virus is is coming up and and, and we're going to look for medication and we're going to look for uh, vaccination. I mean, Mother Nature provides a a huge (laughs) source of pharmaceutical ingredients. We're losing such options by losing biodiversity. Tragically, we're losing species that, that we never, ever met and we never, ever understood their abilities. That's, that's what I say. It kind of We're losing optionality.
2: OK, then. Risk, mitigation, optionality it is. I still think it's kind of a clinical way to put it.
3: Peter's language might be different, but his point is really the same as the forum's point and very much Hindu's as well. Biodiversity loss is an existential risk for all of us and, by extension, for companies.
1: Kind of the, the Corona crisis very, very dramatically illustrated kind of how humans poorly manage such risks. Uh, no, nobody apparently was prepared to make proper investments in mitigating pandemic risk. And and many of these risks that come from from loss of bio- biodiversity have, have the same character. Because these systems will not gradually disappear, they will fall over a cliff.
2: So did Peter have anything to say about how to manage the risk? That's his expertise, right?
3: Indeed. Well, you manage the risk ultimately by stopping biodiversity loss. The problem is, of course, that when you're talking about these kinds of big collective risks, there's only so much any individual business can do. And Peter sees a pretty wide spectrum of individual business responses. When it comes to nature-friendly behaviour, not every CEO has got the memo.
1: Will all the industries? go there just look at some of the big oil players that have quite interesting strategies to to rebuild their businesses then you have others that seem to live uh, up for the day and 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 as i said i mean exploit until uh, until the last moment it's the dilemma of nobody wants to be the first to to give up everybody tries to stay in as long as possible which is kind of difficult to handle on a global scale.
2: Well, that kind of brings us back to my question, doesn't it? I mean, sure, you've got guys like Mart at T-Mill working hard to try and respect nature in their company. And it's great that that's a growing trend. But what if not enough businesses can be trusted to behave like this? What about the ones who are doing, as Peter says, and just trying to carry on exploiting to the end? What's plan B?
3: Well, if you talk to a lot of people, the answer to this is a much more ambitious type of conservation. Humans could be nature compatible by just leaving nature alone. How about half the world for humans, half for nature? This sort of super ambitious conservation goal is one thing Sir David Attenborough has been advocating for. There are a few different proposals out there from different groups. The biggest version I've come across is something called the Global Deal for Nature, which is basically a giant conservation plan. And I do mean giant. This makes Yellowstone Park look like a family garden. Eric Dinnerstein is one of the architects of the plan as well as being director of the Biodiversity and Wildlife Solutions Programme at Resolve, an NGO in Washington, D.C.
8: The Global Deal for Nature is a time-bound, science-based framework to conserve the diversity and abundance of life on Earth. When we say that we want to set aside, protect 50% of the Earth's terrestrial surface, for nature, what we talk about is 30% protected by in the terrestrial realm by 2030, an additional 20% set aside as what we call climate stabilization areas that don't have to be formally protected, but simply what we need to do in these habitats is to prevent the loss of vegetative cover and increased emissions. So just manage them better. So 50% of the whole Earth?
3: Yes, I did say ambitious. Eric and his colleagues first came up with this idea a few years ago. To give you an idea of how ambitious it actually is, here are the numbers for where we are now. Currently, something like 15% of the Earth's land is officially conserved. In that context, another 35% sounds pretty enormous to me. I dusted down my high school maths and it's actually 52 million square miles, which is about five times the size of China.
2: Okay, sounds expensive. Any idea what all this will cost?
3: Well, they reckon something like $200 billion a year. If you want to read the details, you can check out their app, globalsafetynet.app. There's a visualization there that shows which areas of the Earth need to be protected, which really brings it all to life. There's also a piece in Science called A Global Safety Net to Reverse Biodiversity Loss and Stabilize Earth's Climate. And if you read that, you'll get the full shilling.
2: Yeah, I read it. Thanks for the tip. So it sounds like it would be pretty significant if they could make it happen. It would basically put a stop to the mass extinction that we're all living through, which is great, obviously, but I hadn't realized what a big deal it would also be for climate change.
3: Yes, because all those biodiversity-rich areas they want to protect are also the ones that lock up the most carbon. Very useful.
2: Well, one thing you haven't talked about. Aren't a lot of those areas also already inhabited by indigenous peoples? And what do they have to say about it?
3: Absolutely, and this is really important. As both Hindu and Eric will tell you, indigenous peoples are the best stewards of biodiversity in the world. A 2019 study that looked at 15,000 geographies in Brazil, Australia and Canada found that there are more animals of all kinds in places where indigenous communities manage the land, even compared to conservation areas like parks and wildlife reserves. Which isn't all that surprising when you listen to Hindu talk.
0: I give you the concrete examples. Like in my peoples, we do have special trees. They are bigger trees. They are six or seven, if I'm not wrong. So no one touch those trees. No one can cut them. You can cut things around, but no one can cut them at all. If you lose these trees, you lose all the ecosystem around. But if you do not know them, you just say like three is three and then you start cutting. You destroy the balance of all the places around.
2: So how does this sit with these big conservation goals? It's
3: definitely sensitive. Despite the success of indigenous peoples at managing the biodiversity of their lands, historically speaking, it is fair to say that big conservation projects haven't always had harmonious relations with them there have been cases of indigenous people being forcibly removed from their lands to make way for conservation. Future plans for big conservation of any kind that overlap with indigenous lands will face a lot of pressure to make sure they include and respect indigenous people's rights, something Eric is keenly aware of.
8: First, indigenous peoples, if they choose to be, are a major part of the solution to the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. In general, studies have shown that Nature is better protected on indigenous lands than similar habitat that's not under indigenous domain. And similarly, those habitats are more intact. So in other words, they're they're keeping their carbon stores better than places that are not managed or under their sovereignty. So they have a critical role to play if they choose to. And so something that society could do around the world, societies, is to empower indigenous peoples even more to gain title, official title to their lands so that they can be these better stewards and finance that effort. Because that's probably the single cheapest thing we can do to preserve our environment.
3: There will be important details to resolve here about who exactly is in charge of lands that are earmarked for conservation. Certainly for Hindu and for Graham Reed back at Canada's Assembly of First Nations, there's a healthy amount of skepticism to overcome.
5: I mean, I think things are changing. Um but <laughs> I, I equally don't have confidence, especially the history of conservation movements, which, you know, <laughs> even now uh, actively remove indigenous peoples from lands to, you know, make sure that we don't harm them. Whereas, you know, as we talked about the kind of foundational framework for indigenous, the peoples is living you know reciprocally and in balance with uh with nature you know here in canada there's kind of the growing movement of indigenous protected and conserved areas uh, which is about you know reasserting the role of indigenous peoples in, you know stewarding their lands waters and territories and you know, enables and begins to have that conversation about responsibility over land and and kind of intertwined into that is decision making, free prior informed consent, etc. But unless we're talking about that, uh, you know, I, I don't have much confidence.
2: Okay, sounds like plenty of complexity to work out there then. I hate to rush you, but I guess we're close to wrapping this episode up.
5: Yep, just
3: one more conversation I wanted to squeeze in here, an example of how just occasionally it can be big business itself that promotes conservation. Perhaps the ultimate poster child of nature friendliness in business is Natura, a cosmetics giant headquartered in Brazil. They have a few big brands like Aesop, The Body Shop, Avon. If there is a multi-billion dollar public company that runs on anything like indigenous perspectives on nature, it's probably this one. Natura makes high-end cosmetics out of Amazonian seeds and fruits, working directly with Amazonian indigenous peoples for its supply of raw materials. I spoke to Marcelo Bihar, the Group VP for Sustainability. He illustrates the business approach with the tale of the Ukuba tree.
9: So Ukuba is a tree that was about to get extincted from the Amazon region because it was being used uh, to produce roofs and broomsticks. The community was taking away the trees, Uh, to sell it to the industry of wood. Uh, Then we we took the seed from the ukuba tree and we studied it a lot and we understood that we could take half of its seeds and to use its hydrating power to produce a great line of cosmetics and uh, we could pay for the community three times more, so 60 reais per year, per tree, for half of its seeds. When the community understood that we could pay three times more for the tree to be stand each year and not to be taken away. The communities start not only to not take away any more trees, but to plant them instead, so they could have some future benefit uh, for that cosmetic line. So I think that's a, a very practical example on how the use of biodiversity and good capitalism can be associated.
3: Unsurprisingly, since its products are derived from Amazonian fruits and seeds, Natura is highly incentivized to protect the Amazon. And since their main suppliers are indigenous peoples, they have a special interest in their welfare.
9: So we share the benefits, the financial benefits, and we share in different capabilities. So we also build projects in terms of health, education, sustainable technology. We enhance their schools, we enhance their medical capabilities. That's why, what we mean by sharing benefits.
3: Obviously, they're also directly interested in the welfare of the forest itself. Natura works with local communities directly to protect almost 2 million hectares of the Amazon and is looking to protect another million over the next 10 years. They're publicly committed to zero deforestation and have added their voice to the chorus of corporate pressure on Brazil's government over this issue.
2: OK. Well, my question this week was whether we can stop destroying nature. You want to put your cards on the table now?
3: Well I'm going to go with yes but um, it's going to take a lot of doing obviously. First of all we're going to need the political will to spare huge tracts of the earth from deforestation or other forms of exploitation and we're going to need the ingenuity and sensitivity to do that in a way that will endure. Oh and also we're just going to have to fundamentally rethink our entire approach to business and consumption.
6: If we manage to look at not GDP as a single measure of growth and development, if we manage to find a way to price the environmental value of the ecosystem services that we're using in a just manner, then capitalism is not that, right? Like, I mean, it just depends what you do with that capitalism.
3: You're listening to House on Fire. We'll be back right after this.
2: The World Economic Forum has a brand new podcast, Meet the Leader, where the world's top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest problems. This week, we talked to Netta Koren, founder of the Hexa Foundation, a nonprofit organization using blockchain to solve big humanitarian challenges. She'll explain how blockchain can tackle things like waste and foreign aid, as well as prevent one of the internet's most pernicious problems, exploitative images of children.
8: We're actually using fingerprints of these photos, kind of like a code or a hash and all the cloud platform has to
2: do is scan every new photo against the global database of illegal photos. For the majority of internet users, we can today remove the images for them and help cloud platforms remove all the images um,
6: from their user base.
2: She'll also explain how she uses patience in her work and the importance of finding doers to move big projects ahead. All that and more on this week's Meet the Leader, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Well, we aim to provide not just illumination, but inspiration on this podcast. So to sum up, I'm going to make time for one final story. It's a story David Attenborough told at Davos 2019, which manages to capture so much of what we've been talking about and why it's so important, all in one short, haunting parable.
4: We have to recognise that every breath of air we take, every mouthful of food that we take, comes from the natural world. And that if we damage the natural world, we damage ourselves. To give a a particular example, um, in the early 19th, 20th century, uh, the sea otter on the Pacific had the most luxurious fur that human beings had ever come across. So, of course, you hunt sea otters. And then suddenly you began to realize that actually sea otters were getting rarer and rarer, and they were on the verge of extinction. At the same time, a certain group of people saw that the seas around the Pacific Ocean, up on the Pacific Northwest, the food fish were getting scarcer. And it didn't seem there was any connection between the two, but actually, Sea otters uh, prey upon sea urchins. Sea urchins actually live on the floor of the sea and they eat small sea algae, fucus. So if they eat all that, the forests disappear. If the forests disappear, the young fish, hatchlings, actually normally live in in that forest, suddenly begin to disappear knock out the sea otters, and in fact, the, the consequence is loss of fertility in the sea oceans of fish upon which we might wish to live.
2: And that's our out point for this week. Hope you've enjoyed this episode and learned something. If you want to join us next week, we're going to be talking about the extreme lengths that some scientists are willing to go in order to preserve biodiversity. James is on the interview trail already, and I promised some crazy stories in that one. Until then, have a good week.